The Bible tells us many things about the Christian life. It's about serving and obeying and worshipping. It's about fighting against sin. And our passage this morning tells us the Christian life is also about waiting. It's about waiting for the return of the King. But the kind of waiting we're talking about isn't the kind of waiting people were doing before the royal wedding last week. They were standing or sitting around the streets and the parks of London. They were just putting in time until the procession went by. But for the Christian, the fact that we're waiting for the King of Kings causes us to give ourselves to serving and obeying and worshipping and fighting sin. We get up every day, and despite all of our failures, we seek to live faithfully for our King. Because we know our King is coming back. He's not just going to flash by us in a procession. He's coming to claim us. So we can be with him where he is. So turn with me please to Luke chapter 17. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 1051. We'll pick up at verse 20. And we'll follow this through this morning until chapter 18, verse 8. And in the passage we're going to look at, Jesus' teaching divides up into three sections. First of all, we're told the kingdom of God has come. Second, the kingdom of God is coming. And third, God's people are to pray and trust him while we wait. So we find the first of these in chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. The kingdom of God has come. Luke says, Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. The background to this is that the Pharisees had no doubt the kingdom of God would come. One day God would come and he would rule. But the Pharisees assumed the kingdom was going to be announced by unmissable, unavoidable signs. Signs written across the sky. And so when they looked at what Jesus was doing, they didn't see the kingdom of God. Yes, he was doing miracles, But it all seemed much too humble to be the kingdom of God. So they say to Jesus, you're preaching about the kingdom of God, but when is it going to come? Maybe there was some sarcasm in their voice. Yes, okay, Jesus, we know you're bringing in God's kingdom. But seriously, when are you going to bring it? As we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees were not wrong to expect unmissable, unavoidable signs. In just a few verses, Jesus is going to go on to say that that will happen. But where the Pharisees have gone wrong is in expecting the kingdom to come all at once. Jesus has been teaching that it comes in stages, two stages. What the Pharisees were looking for is what theologians today call the consummation. 
the day when all opposition to God is decisively crushed and Christ's reign ceases to be disputed anymore. Jesus will talk about that day in a moment. That will happen when he returns to earth a second time. But here in these verses, Jesus wants to make clear there's also a sense in which the kingdom has genuinely come already. It came with Jesus' first arrival on earth. And the signs Jesus is doing, they may not be done in the sky for the whole world to see, but they're still signs that the kingdom of God has genuinely come. When Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons and calms the storms, he's showing that God's power is present. Through Jesus' ministry, God reigns over nature. He reigns over sickness and death and evil. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is within you. Some people have understood this to mean the kingdom is in your hearts. But remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. We're told that. And they reject Jesus. The kingdom is not in their hearts. So the NIV footnote down at the bottom of your page is much better. It offers us an alternative translation. The kingdom of God is among you. In other words, Jesus is talking about himself here. He's saying, you're all waiting for fireworks in the sky, but the kingdom has arrived and you're missing it. Jesus is saying, you don't have to go searching for the kingdom of God. Just look what I'm doing right in front of you. Those are signs that God's kingdom is here. We might ask, why has God done things this way? The world's in a mess. We all know that. Why hasn't God done what the Pharisees expected? Why didn't he just send Jesus to crush all opposition and evil and bring in eternal peace with one stroke? Why would he bring the kingdom in two stages? The answer is simply because of God's mercy. The Bible is clear. Yes, this world is messed up. It's also clear that you and I are part of the reason it's messed up. We're part of the problem. Crushing all evil at one stroke would include crushing you and me and everyone else. So before that final consummation of God's kingdom, Jesus came by himself on a mercy mission. And we've been watching Jesus for months now go about his ministry as we've been working through Luke's gospel. What has he been doing? Basically, he's been doing two things. He's been showing people that he is the king. His miracles have shown his authority. And he's also been urging all who see and hear him to come into God's kingdom. That just means come under God's rule. Submit their lives to God's authority. How do people do that? They put their trust in Jesus. That means acknowledging that he is God's king and he's the door to God's kingdom. The only way in is through Jesus, through trusting him. But the problem the Pharisees have is they don't think this first stage of the kingdom is necessary. They assume they're already in God's kingdom. They're just waiting for God to come and crush the evildoers so they, the religious people, the good, worthy people, can receive their eternal reward. 
And we've seen plenty of times that, yes, the Pharisees are masters at getting the outward appearances right. But Jesus keeps challenging them about their hearts. Just back in chapter 16, he said, You are the ones who love to justify yourselves in the eyes of man. But God knows your hearts. In other words, Jesus is saying, You can impress men and women with your religious behavior. But God knows the selfishness and rebellion that's smoldering away in your hearts. The Pharisees needed God's mercy too. But they were in danger of missing out on God's kingdom because they won't acknowledge that they need God's mercy. And today we still live in this first stage of God's kingdom. Jesus is no longer walking around the earth, but he continues his work through his people. That's you and me. When he returned to heaven, he said to his followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are his witnesses in Pelsall and Aldridge and Clayhanger and all the other places that we live in and work in. And today we can see evidence that Jesus the King is still at work. He's still changing lives around the world, giving life to spiritually dead people, freeing them from slavery to sin putting broken lives back together again. And today Jesus is still urging men and women to come into God's kingdom. Every time one of Jesus' followers shares the good news about Jesus, we call it the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the way back to God. Every time that good news is shared, Jesus is calling those who hear it to come under God's good and loving rule, to come into the kingdom. And so slowly, usually unspectacularly, God's kingdom is growing. It's spreading, just the way Jesus said it would. Men and women in China and Italy and Africa and England are finding God's mercy. They're coming into the kingdom. They're being made ready for the day the king comes back. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're a religious person. But you've never admitted that your heart needs to be changed. Maybe you're quite proud of your own goodness. There are a lot of people like that in England. But you've never owned up to your selfish motivations or your hatred or bitterness. Or the fact that you're withholding your worship from God by being devoted to things that aren't God. That's sin too. You need to come into God's kingdom. And the good news is, for today at least, the door of the kingdom is open. You can come to God through Jesus. You can find God's mercy and you can take your place in his kingdom. Jesus has challenged the Pharisees. The kingdom of God has come. Now he turns to his disciples and he says in verses 22 to 37, the kingdom of God is coming. At this point, Jesus begins to talk about the second stage of God's kingdom, the consummation, the day when the king comes back. 
And if Jesus' words to the Pharisees were a challenge to come into the kingdom, here he speaks to encourage the disciples to stay faithful as they wait for the kingdom. Jesus knew things were going to get tough for his followers between his first and second coming. If the Pharisees were in danger of missing the first stage of the kingdom, the disciples would be in danger of giving up hope as they were waiting for the second stage of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, firstly in this section, Christ's return will be unmissable. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. That's in verses 22 to 25. His return will be unmissable. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Notice that Jesus has switched from talking about the kingdom of God to talking about the day or the days of the Son of Man. Why has he switched? Simply to distinguish between the two stages of God's kingdom. Throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord is a way of talking about the final judgment day. And the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Why would he choose that title for himself? Well, you may remember at the start of our service, we read from the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a future vision of one like a son of man. He was given all of God's sovereign power. He reigned over all peoples and nations, and his kingdom was an everlasting kingdom. So in that vision, Daniel saw a man, but a man with all of God's power and privileges. And Daniel's vision was well known among the Jews. So by referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, I'm the one Daniel saw. I'm the man with all of God's power and privileges. So when Jesus talks about the day of the Son of Man, he's talking about what we've called the consummation of God's kingdom, the final day of judgment. When the king comes back and every knee will bow before him, willingly or unwillingly. The day when all evil will be crushed and his reign will no longer be opposed. But we might wonder, what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 22, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man are the days of his eternal reign. The eternal reign that begins with the day, the judgment day. Jesus' disciples will long for those days of eternal reign because things are not going to be easy for them. They will face trials and persecutions and pain and sadness. They will long for the return of the king so they can enjoy his unopposed reign. But Jesus says, you will have to be patient. You will have to resist being taken in by speculation that sets dates and times for my return. 
That's what he means in verse 23. Men will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Every generation seems to have an irresistible urge to set dates for Christ's return. Steve was telling me about the latest predictions that have been made. Supposedly Jesus will come back this month. And then the judgment day will be in October. I'm not going to give you the specific dates. Some of you might be tempted to put them in your diary. And I'm not sure why there are two dates, but that's beside the point. Because here Jesus tells us, ignore that kind of stuff. Don't get sucked in with that kind of speculation. When Jesus comes back, it will be unmissable. That's not just meaning we can't afford to miss it. Jesus means we won't be able to miss it. It was easy to miss the first time he came. Most people did miss it. He came in humility and obscurity. He was born among animals and shepherds. He was brought up in a carpenter's house. But next time, no one will miss him. Just like lightning lights up the whole sky, so the return of the king will be unmissable. But first, Jesus says, I'm going to have to suffer and die. Look at verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things, that's the Son of Man, and be rejected by this generation. Jesus has mentioned this several times already in Luke's Gospel. This is why he came to earth. This is the only way anyone can receive a place in God's kingdom. We're all sinners. We can't enter the presence of a holy God. We can't at least unless God himself takes care of our sin. And that's what God sent Jesus to do. And that's what Jesus achieved when he died on the cross. He took the weight and the impurity of our sin on his own shoulders. And he did it so we could receive a royal robe and a seat at the table in God's kingdom. That's why he's the door of the kingdom. He's the only way in because he has paid for our robe and our seat at the table. If we turn away from him, we have no right to be at the party. And what this means is that from our perspective today, there's only one more great event left in history. The cross has happened. In God's timetable, Jesus has only one thing left to do, and that's to come back. So if we think of history like a bus route, then the bus has passed its last stop on the route. The next stop is the depot. History will end and eternity will begin. That's what it means to live in the time after the cross. God has told us his next move will be to bring history to a close. And here Jesus assures his first disciples and us That day will be unmissable. Then he goes on to say, Christ's return will take the world by surprise. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. 
Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Both Noah and Lot lived through days of judgment that foreshadow the final day of judgment. In both cases, the judgment came because of people's sin. But it also took people by surprise. They were doing normal, everyday things. And they were so taken up with those things, they weren't ready for what was coming. And Jesus says, it's going to be the same when I come back. Maybe you can think back to last Monday morning. How many of you woke up expecting to hear that U.S. special forces had taken out Osama bin Laden? None of us were expecting that. And yet, for 10 years, we'd known that they were looking for him. He was top of their most wanted list. But none of us woke up expecting to hear what we heard last Monday. We were focused on other things. And so we were taken by surprise. Even though we knew in theory that they could find him any day. This morning I got up, I had a shower, a bowl of cereal. I went through the sermon. I got here, the church was already open. Some of the musicians were here practicing. It didn't seem in any way unusual. It's just another normal Sunday. And whatever day of the week Jesus comes back, that's how it's going to seem. Just another normal Sunday or Monday or whatever day it is. So if the idea that Jesus is coming back seems unreal to you because the world's just going on as normal, then please hear what Jesus says here. That is how it's going to be. It's not going to be like the local elections we had last week. You're not going to get a card in the post giving you a date and time to be ready. At least if you do, it's a hoax. You're not going to be given a month or a week or a day to put your house in order. You won't be given time to take Jesus seriously before it's too late. Today is the time to do that. Because the day, the day of his return, is going to take us all by surprise. Even those who are ready for him to come, those who have come into the kingdom, We don't know what day he's coming. People can make all the calculations and predictions they want about the date. They're wasting their time. God's word assures us that Christ's return will take the world by surprise. It will be a terrible thing to be caught outside the kingdom. How much better to be taken by surprise when you're ready to meet the king. Then most crucially of all, in verses 31 to 37, Jesus says, Christ's return will be decisive. Verse 31. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. 
and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. We might wonder why verse 31 is here. Is Jesus saying there's going to be a big storm before he comes back? Lots of people will be up retiling their roof. Actually, this is a cultural thing. Houses in Palestine had a flat roof. And the roof was used as part of the living area. We can still see that in some houses there today. But then we might ask, well, why does Jesus tell people not to go in and get things from their houses? The answer is in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Lot has been mentioned already in verses 28 and 29. Genesis chapter 19 tells us Lot and his family had the chance to escape whenever God's judgment was falling on the city that they lived in, that was Sodom. But as they were escaping, we're told, Lot's wife looked back. It doesn't just mean she looked over her shoulder to see what was happening. She knew the city was going to be destroyed But that's where her heart was. And so God's judgment fell on her too. Jesus' return will reveal where our hearts are. Are they tied to this world? Are they tied to the things that we possess in this world? Is our heart's treasure here on earth? Then in the decisive moment, our hearts will turn to our possessions here on earth. If our hearts are in heaven, then in the decisive moment our hearts will turn to the returning king. Either way, our hearts will show where they belong. Either with this world that is passing away, or in the future new heaven and earth where God will live with his people. Verse 33 says, Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. If we cling to the stuff of this life, if that's life to us, we will lose out on eternal life. Jesus made the same point back in chapter 9. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self, his soul? Then we have these comments in verses 34 and 35. I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Some Christians have taken this to mean there will be something called a rapture. Which means that life on earth will go on, but God's people are going to be plucked off the earth. But in the context here, there is no indication that life on earth will go on. Certainly it didn't go on in the two examples that Jesus has just given us. The days of Noah and the days of Lot. On the same day Noah and Lot were saved along with their families, everything else was destroyed. And Jesus said in verse 30, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. 
What Jesus is saying is in verse 34 and 35, when I return, at the time I return, some will face judgment and some will be saved from judgment. And you'll notice too, if you look closely, Jesus does not tell us whether the one taken is taken for judgment or taken for salvation. But what is clear is that in both examples, the two people have opposite destinies. One will face judgment and one will be saved. And that's Jesus' point. His return will be decisive. Life isn't going to go on. When the day comes, everyone will go where they belong. There's not going to be an opportunity to change sides. Today is the time to get ready. Those words about the future are calling us to make the right decision here in the present. The disciples respond to Jesus in verse 37 by saying, Where, Lord? Apparently they're asking, Where is the judgment going to take place? Where are you going to set up your judgment seat? And Jesus gives them a pretty cryptic answer. Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. What on earth does that mean? I think Jesus is saying, don't worry about where the judgment is going to happen. Make sure you're prepared for it. Because when it comes, it's final. Once the separation I've just been talking about occurs, there's no turning back. There will be no second chances. You can't hedge your bets and then make your mind up when I arrive. It'll be too late at that point. You will either be saved from judgment because you were trusting in me, or you will receive judgment because you rejected or you ignored me. So the point of the vultures circling a dead body, the point is that those who receive judgment are done for. Judgment is going to be grim and gruesome and final. Vultures feed on dead meat. Christ's return will be decisive. Remember, this section is spoken to Jesus' disciples. He knows that things are going to get tough for his disciples. They may have to show great perseverance and patience as they wait for his return. He knows they will be in danger of giving up hope. So he assures them the kingdom of God is coming. They will have to be patient, but their king will come back. And then Jesus encourages his followers to stay faithful as they wait. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain time there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that time who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, 
who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Often this story is dealt with in isolation from its context. So usually the point is taken to be something like, whatever it is you're praying for, don't give up. But actually, Jesus has something much more specific in mind. In verse 8, you'll notice he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is still teaching us about his second coming, the consummation of the kingdom. This story is calling us to stay faithful as we wait for the king. We're not to give up hope. We're not to think our faith has been in vain. Jesus says in these verses, God's people are to pray and trust him while we wait. Some people have struggled with this story because they assume the judge is supposed to represent God in some way. But that is not the case. God is not the judge in this story. God is himself in this story. He's the person, we're told, the judge does not fear in verse 2. In other words, this judge does not honor and reverence God. And he has no compassion for the people God made either. The judge is not God-like in any way at all. But this widow is stuck with him. She lives in his town. He's her only hope for justice against her adversary. Jesus doesn't tell us what her difficulty was. It may well have been financial. Maybe it was to do with keeping her house after her husband had died. Whatever it was, as a woman, she's already in a position of weakness in this society. And now we're told she has to deal with a judge who has a heart of stone. Things seem pretty hopeless for this widow. Just as things can seem hopeless for Christians living in a society where God is not honored. A society where those who seek to honor God are increasingly marginalized. And in many parts of the world persecuted. We're hearing about that every Sunday. But in the face of this widow's apparently hopeless situation, she keeps coming with her plea. She doesn't give up hope. And so we're told in verse 4, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. This judge seems quite proud of his bad reputation. But even though he has no inclination to help the widow, he does help her. Simply because she persists so much, she gets on his nerves. She's driving him mad. We've already said the judge is not supposed to represent God. He's here because he's so different from God. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. If even the unjust judge can be persuaded to give justice, how much more can we count on God to bring justice? To those he has chosen, those he has sent Christ to die for. 
Remember the picture back in chapter 15 in what we often refer to as the story of the prodigal son. The father watching at the window for his son and then throwing all dignity to the wind when he sees his son coming. Remember how he hitched up his robes and ran down the road to meet his son. When we bring our requests to God, that's the God we're praying to. Our loving, attentive Father. He couldn't be more different from the unjust judge. And the context here, justice, is tied to Christ's return. That's the day when wrong will be put right. And tears will be wiped away. Jesus has promised us that day is coming. And we are to pray persistently for him to fulfill his promise. Even when it feels like our prayers aren't being heard. Even when it seems like a wasted effort. The final lines of the Bible give us the words we are to always pray and never give up. The prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. Come like you promised you would. Yes, there are lots of things to be persistent about in our prayers. But in the context of this passage, the persistent prayer Jesus is calling for is prayer for his return. For the consummation of his kingdom. But maybe we're uncomfortable praying for that. Maybe we think there's still too much work to be done for God. Maybe we think of family members who are still outside God's kingdom. So we hesitate to pray for the decisive day when the king will come back. Maybe we don't pray this because we're so comfortable here. We're having too much fun to pray for Jesus to come back. Or maybe we're aware that Christians have been praying for Christ's return for a couple of thousand years. And well, he hasn't answered it yet. Maybe we should just wait and see. But if we love him, if our hearts long to be with him, don't we long for him to come back? However busy we are serving him, don't we want to meet him and see him as he is? And I say this carefully, however much we love our families, don't we love our Savior more? Aren't we helping our families by letting them know we love our Savior more? Doesn't that magnify his worthiness in front of them? Don't we long to stand before our Savior and tell him to his face that we love him? Don't we long to take our place in that congregation before the throne, singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain? The Apostle Paul describes Christians as people who long for Christ's appearing. And that's surely the point of the second half of verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Someone has said, the Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for him. We show we're looking for him when we pray for his return. Whatever we have to go through in this life, our great hope is the promise of Christ's return. When we pray for his return, 
we show that we trust God's faithfulness. He hasn't come back yet, but he will come. We trust him. And so we keep praying, come, Lord Jesus. We're going to do that together now as we sing, There is a Day. If you'll stand with me.